0: Open God's Word together, uh, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you as we just sang. We, we thank you for your faithfulness to us day in and day out. Uh, we pray that as we open your Word uh, today, that you would speak clearly to us. That you would show us uh, what you have for us uh, in this text. I pray that you would be our teacher today. As as we confess each week, uh, we cannot do this without you. So we ask that you would come and that you would move freely. In this place, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you'd show us the truth of your word and apply it to us this morning. Uh, we pray that as we do that, as we see uh, your heart and the way that you're going and you're sending us and that you're drawing people to yourself, that we would just be taken afresh by your wonderful grace and mercy. In your faithfulness to us in all these ways. And so we just pray that you'd be glorified in our time. We pray that your name would be lifted up, that we would make much of you as we spend time in your word this morning. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, we live uh, as people uh, in, in North America today, where we live uh, in the United States, we live, uh, and I think it's fair to say, I've heard several people say this, although I don't know of like a source that I can point to, that we live in the most consumeristic society in the history of the world, that we live in a place in a time where this idea of being consumers and buying and consuming things is huge, more so than any other time in the history of the world. And uh, I, was, I was trying to find some t- statistics on that and some different things, and I found an article this week. That, that I found very interesting, but it kind of highlights some of these things. Uh, maybe you haven't thought about that. Maybe that's a new idea to you. Maybe you full agreement on that or you've just never even considered it. But this idea that we live in a very consumer-driven place. But listen to a couple of these statistics. It says uh, that the average American in their home has 300,000 items. 300,000 items. I'm in the middle of moving, and I think that's probably true. Uh, I just stuff everywhere and you're going through it and we, we accumulate so much stuff, but 300,000 items. And that's the average, uh, in the United States, we have more malls than high schools. I don't know if you're aware of that. That was kind of interesting to me. We have more shopping malls than we do high schools. Uh, we buy twice as much as we did 50 years ago. So as a society in general, we buy twice as much stuff than we did 50 years ago. Uh, the average child has 238 toys by the time they're 10. And they play with, on average, about 12 of them. That's true. Is that not true? I mean, that's exactly the way my house is. There's just stuff everywhere. You can just throw stuff away and they don't even notice. We have so much stuff just all around us. Um, The average American throws away 65 pounds of clothes each year. That's the average American, 65 pounds of clothes that we just get... And what it says, I mean, I just just throw those out there as it shows us. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling, is it not? But it kind of shows us how consumer-driven we are, how much stuff we accumulate. But here's my question. Are you surprised by any of those? Does anybody go, oh, no, no, that can't be? And I think most of us go, yeah, that sounds about right, sadly, when we stop and think about it. But when we start to talk about being in a consumer society, what I want to mention this morning is I think – Uh, Just because we're so inundated with that all the time, the way our economy works, what we're we're told all the time, you need more stuff, you need stuff to be happy, you need to buy, 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 we're continually hit with that. Because we live in that, we're kind of like the fish in the water in terms of consumerism. And then what happens is it makes its way into the church. And we end up in the church operating in the same way. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but even think about the language we use. People say, what time is the service, right? We talk in consumer uh, language when we even talk about the church. What time is your service? What do you offer for my kids? What do you do for this? How are you providing these services? And so we talk that way because that's where we live and that's the culture we're in and that's part of it. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up if you hadn't thought about that before, but I want to kind of shine a light on it and here's why. When we look at Acts, And what we've been seeing in the book of Acts, and if you're visiting with us today, we're working our way through the book of Acts, which details and shows us how the early church grew. Jesus' very disciples that were with him day in and day out, he sets them loose to go tell the world, proclaim the truth of what he's done, and we see the church grow exponentially. And Acts takes us from 30 A.D. to about 63 A.D., and we see the church spread like wildfire. So here's my question. With what we've been looking at in Acts, do we see a consumer-driven church that looks in those ways the way we talk today, or is it something very different in the book of Acts? And if you thought about it, can you put your finger on what's different here? And by the way, I would answer that question of no, it, it doesn't look like that in Acts. I think it looks very different. But I want you to think about why it looks very different. And I think the, the big reason that we see is Jesus gives a command to the early church, to his earliest fathers, followers to go make disciples what we call the great commission make disciples go through the face of the earth proclaiming everything that jesus has done we see that at the beginning of acts acts 1 8 tells us uh, to go and he, he says to go be my witnesses in jerusalem in judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth and that was the program they had i don't know if you've ever thought about that but that was jesus's program for the church Go be disciples, make disciples, be witnesses to what Jesus has done. Now go do that. That's, that's what the church is called to be. And that's kind of the program that Jesus gives us. And you see that in Acts, that that's the way they're operating and the way they're going. And they continue to go and they continue to tell and they continue to meet together. And they're growing as disciples. And it tells us over and over in these summary statements. And they were finding favor with all the people. And people were coming to faith. And they were being baptized and they were professing their need for Jesus and they were coming into the church. And we just see this happening over and over and over again in Acts. And what we see when we start to look at the snapshot that we have in Acts is it's disciples on mission together to proclaim the glory of God in the way he's called them to do. I would venture to say when we're reading in Acts, you see very little to no consumers. Right? I haven't we're, we're in chapter eight and we've gotten to this point. And I've yet to see anybody say like, OK, well, what time's the meeting and what time will you uh, meet my needs and how will you do that? And what does that look like? It doesn't look anything like that in Acts. It's a very different snapshot that we see of the early followers. There are no consumers. There's only disciples. And so I want us to think about that uh, image of what God is doing and the mission that he's calling us to. And what I would say to you, and I think we're going to see this very clearly in our text in chapter eight today, is that God is the sending God. He is the God of mission. This is his idea. This is his program to be going and making disciples, to be going and bearing witness to what Christ has done. And that's what he's calling us into. And so where we are in Acts, we got to this place last week where they're growing like crazy. All these things are happening Uh, Last count that we had is in the beginning of chapter 4, and it tells us it's over 10,000 people. We're further along down the road now, and so we can kind of guess there's a lot more people even than that now, although we don't have an exact number. But the church is growing so much so that we saw at the beginning of chapter 6 that they're having trouble meeting all the physical needs of the people that are now connected to the church, and so they were putting some things in place. And then we saw Stephen, a man full of grace, And wisdom walking in the spirit and he he gets uh, people start to attack his witness. They make up lies about him and they end up killing him. He's persecuted for his faith and he becomes the first martyr at the end of chapter seven. And that's where we sit. And so that's what we're going to pick up today. And this is what I want us to consider when we look at this passage that we're going to look at in chapter eight. The first thing I want you to see is that God is committed to mission and we are called to be part God is committed to this idea of sending and showing and calling people into what he's doing. God is committed to mission, and we are called to be part. The second thing I want us to consider is that we often miss what God is doing, and I want us to consider why. We often miss what God's doing, and so I want us to consider why. And then the last thing we're going to consider is how do we follow God into this and continue to follow the things that he's called us to? How do we reclaim looking like the church that we see in acts today and so let's consider that together and the first thing i want us to see is that god is committed to mission and so what we have here is we're going to jump in at chapter 8 is we're probably a year to a year and a half into the church right from acts 1 as jesus says go be my witnesses to jerusalem judea samaria the ends of the earth and then he ascends to now it's probably about a year and a half But what we have up through chapter 7 is the church primarily, almost exclusively exists in Jerusalem. God's certainly moving. They're boldly proclaiming. They're going out. They're telling people, but they're doing it right in this place. And so this persecution begins to break out, it tells us, in verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, And Samaria, except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so I want you to notice what happens when this persecution arises in Jerusalem. When people are being persecuted for sharing their faith. We see first with Stephen being killed. But then Saul comes along and he's throwing people in prison. He's dragging them out of their houses. And so what happens is it tells us is the people are scattered throughout the regions. And I want you to notice where they're scattered in verse 1 there at the end. It says they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so persecution comes... And these people have been proclaiming the gospel and the church has been growing. But then this persecution comes and God uses this persecution to get them out of their comfort zone of Jerusalem to push them to the places that he's told them to go. Right? A year and a half in and the command was be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In a year and a half, they're still in Jerusalem. And so. What I want you to see is not that God is behind the persecution. Evil men make choices. We have real choices with real consequences. But even in those real choices with real consequences, God is still sovereign. And He's going to use this persecution to push people out into places that they weren't comfortable going before. And that's exactly what happens. It says they went into Judea, into Samaria. And then it says in verse four, and now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so they continue to go and tell. And I want you to see how ingrained that is into their mission and the way they see the church from the very beginning, even when persecution comes and even when they have to flee and even when they go into other places, the thing that's not negotiable is that they stop spreading the word. They continue to spread the word of Jesus everywhere they go. And so the persecution God uses to further the mission, to push them out. To bring forward the next step in what he called them to be, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then it tells us in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so Philip is beginning to teach in Samaria. And so we mentioned this as if you were with us the very first week in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, when he gave that command, and why was it that God actually kind of calls out Samaria? It's like a, a very specific area, right? Because Jerusalem's the city, Judea's kind of like the area, like Dawson, and then uh, uh, Dawson County, or North Georgia, but then he throws in the Samaria. What do you know about Jews and Samaritans? Know anything about their background? Right? They didn't get along, and that's putting it mildly. They hated each other. In fact, in John's Gospel, he tells us that they didn't even speak to one another. They had nothing to do with each other. Oftentimes, when they would travel from place to place, Jews would go around Samaria, so they didn't even have to deal with the Samaritans. And they have a long history together that led to this. In this, Assyrians come in and destroy part of Israel. 700 years before Jesus. And when they do, a lot of Jews are scattered throughout the area. And what happens is some go out and they intermarry with the different cultures and they syncretize the Jewish religion with those in the area. And that's where the Samaritans come from. And out of that comes a dispute on where they should worship. Should it be on Mount Gerizim or should it be in Jerusalem? And they have these Feud's going on, and it just grows and festers to uh, to the point where they hate each other, so much so that they don't even talk, right? And so what we have here is now that this guy, Philip, who was one of the seven that they kind of put in front of the people and laid hands and prayed on with Stephen, we saw at the beginning of chapter six, and Philip goes and he begins to preach in Samaria. And I just want to ask the question, with everything you know and the relationships that were there, is it any wonder that they haven't gone to Samaria yet? Right. Like, I'm sure they were like, hey, remember, Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's like, we'll get to Samaria later. Right. I I think that was part of what was happening. And as this persecution goes and they get scattered, then finally their kind of hand is forced into going into this place. And we see that God is at work, compelling them, opening the doors, kind of prying them into these other areas and these other places. Even those people that they considered their absolute enemies that they wanted to have nothing to do with, that they didn't even talk to, that they went around to avoid them, they're now going and proclaiming the gospel there. And I can't help but think that that's a timely word for us today. We live in a time where sometimes uh, nationalism gets ramped up really high. Nothing wrong with being patriotic that you live in the United States. You've been blessed to live here. We live in a country that affords us great freedoms. There's nothing wrong with being proud of that or liking that or enjoying that. It is a good gift that God has given us. But when our primary identity becomes the nation we live in and not loving and caring people around the world that don't know Jesus, we're missing what God is calling us to right here. God cares about all people and all nations and even the people that we would say, oh, man, there are enemies, because that's exactly what he was doing here. He was prying them out of Jerusalem and pushing them into Samaria, a place where they hated one another. God is committed to mission and he's showing that and he's going to great lengths to call people to himself. We see that not only here, but we're going to see it in in, in verse 26 as he calls Philip to go speak to a man who's from Ethiopia. God is committed to this idea. And I want you to grasp that this morning, that all people, every tribe, tongue and nation, skin color are made in God's image. And he sees them as his children and he's calling all, some of all nations and all people and all tribes and all tongues to come and be part of his kingdom. And that's exactly what he's doing here. But here's the thing I want us to consider. How do we often miss what God is doing, this God of mission who's going out into all nations, and how we miss that at different times? And the first thing I would say and I want us to consider is I think... It's what was going on here and why that they hadn't gone to Samaria. Just so we're clear, that's not very far away at all. It's not a far distant land. It's their neighbors. They just didn't like them. And so we haven't seen the church go into that place, even though there's really nothing precluding them from doing so. But the first reason I think sometimes we miss what God is doing is that we believe the lie that some people are more deserving than others. And we begin to talk that way. And we begin to act that way about it's an us versus them mentality. And those are the bad people over there, and we're the good people over here. And when we do that, we miss fundamentally so many things that we say that we believe as Christians. And when we begin to live like that, that some are too far from God, and some are, 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 it's possible for God to do one, we put God in a box And two, we miss that all people are made in God's image. And so we do that on a regular basis, even the language we use and the way we talk. And we talk about certain people or certain groups as being enemies. And if we put that in a biblical understanding, there are those that know Jesus as their Savior. And there are those that don't. And those that don't need to hear the gospel. That's the only categories there are as the church. And that's exactly what we see them doing and God pushing them in to these different places. And I say the reason that we end up with that type of thinking is it's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. Now, Now, as a Christian, we would say, well, yes, I'm a sinner and I need God's grace and I'm saved by what Christ has done for me. that's, That's fundamental to who we are as Christians. We're saved by faith through the grace of God and what he's done for Jesus. He's done what only he could do for us that we could never do for ourselves. And we admit that and we say that. But sometimes we act as if certain people are even further away from God. Yeah, God saved me and yeah, I'm a sinner. But he didn't have to work quite as hard as he would for those people over there. I say that kind of jokingly, but that type of thinking creeps in whether we admit it or not. And we think maybe because I'm born in this country versus a different country, I'm closer to God. I'm a little more acceptable in my sin than those people are over there. And when we begin to talk that way or even an inkling of this makes its way into our theology, we've missed the bedrock belief that we're standing on, which is we are saved by grace and nothing else. And when we say that, we're missing it. And so when we start to talk about, well, why are you a Christian or why are you saved or why have you become a Christian? The answer is because that God loves me. They say, well, why does God love me? Because He loves me. But then the back door to that is, and he loves me because I'm not quite as bad as that person over there. Which is a lie. That is not true. Or, or you could go further and you could say, well, why is it that you've recognized your need? Why have you realized that you're a sinner and you need Jesus and you put your faith in him? Because God was gracious to you. Because he opened your eyes to see that. It is because God loves and He does this and He's working and He opens your eyes to see at the end. And so when you go, well, those people over there are not as deserving, you misunderstand how you were saved. And when we start to talk about those people are further away or those people are beyond God's reach or those people will never break through, we are not understanding the power of God. When we say that or when we think that way, Those people are too far gone. He saved you. He saved me. And the only way that happens is by a miracle. His grace enters into your life and opens your eyes to see it. And the same God that did that to you is moving today. And He can save anyone. And if we don't see that, we've missed the very bedrock on which we stand, that we are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done, and it's all Him. And so we miss oftentimes when God, uh, where God is moving by that type of thinking. Oh, well, he can't do that there. I see God going, yeah, I can. I'm calling you into this. And they go, I don't know. I don't think it's going to work there. Right? And that's kind of what they were doing here. Year and a half, their neighbors are right there and nobody's gone there yet. And so this persecution breaks out and God begins to push them into Samaria. And so they go and Philip proclaims the gospel in verse 6 and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and they were paralyzed and those who were paralyzed or lame were healed and there was so much joy in that city. It's almost like they'd just been waiting for somebody to come and tell them But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. If Simon is practicing magic and he's uh, awing them with this, is he a man of God that's bringing glory to God? No. No. In fact, most likely, from everything we know from Acts and what's going on here, is probably demonic forces that are continuing to keep these people in the dark. And I want you to understand: these are the people that God is sending the gospel to. And so he goes, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with their magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women and even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. And so we can believe that certain people are beyond God's reach and we're missing what God is doing. But God's emphatically pushing them into this place. And then he's graciously showing them I can save any and all people. Even the Samaritans. Even the Samaritans that were following a magician. And he begins to open their eyes and bring them to faith. But there's a weird thing that happens here. And we see this in Acts a couple times. And it can bring questions and be kind of perplexing when it does. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the, whole, the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we get some questions about our theology and how the Holy Spirit comes and when and what does that look like in these couple passages and acts like this. And so, just real briefly, and if you have more questions, let's talk more deeply about this uh, at lunch. But what we see clearly in the Bible is that when you put your faith in Jesus and you profess his name, the Holy Spirit comes in fullness in your life. And there's a couple times in Acts, here being one of them, where the Holy Spirit doesn't come at that exact moment when they put their faith and they're baptized, but yet it says the Holy Spirit hasn't come in fullness yet. And so they send Peter and John and they come down to this place and they lay hands on them and then all of a sudden they receive the Holy Spirit. Why does God wait like that? What's going on? That's out of the norm of the way that we see the Bible tells us he does this. This is not the way it usually works. It's usually you get the fullness of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith in that moment God comes. So why like this? And I think what God is doing here is he's showing them that we are all saved the same way, that we are all the same children of God in Christ. Here were the hated Samaritans that they would go around, they wouldn't talk to, and God waits and he sends the apostles. And Peter and John come down and they lay on hands and they see with their own two eyes the power of God and how he's coming on the people of Samaria. And I had a professor who said, one of my favorite professors in seminary loved Acts. Dr. Larkin wrote a commentary on Acts, he did the translation and the New Living Translation. He's now gone home to be with the Lord. And he's still teaching me. (laughs) But he said this He says, if God had not withheld the Spirit until uh, the Jerusalem apostles came, converts on both sides of the cultural barrier might have found Christ without finding each other. And so, what Dr. Larkin said is, he he said, "I, I think God waited. So that the apostles would come so that they could see the fullness of what God was doing there. And they would go back to the church in Jerusalem and go, Ah, God's Spirit has fallen on the people of Samaria. All people. The gospel is for all people. In all places. In all times. And that's what he does. And so God shows them. He goes to great lengths to destroy our bad thinking that some people are more deserving than other people. And he shows them the fullness of the Holy Spirit coming. And so we can miss the mission of God when we buy that lie that some people are more deserving than others or some people are beyond God's reach.
1: But I think there's another
0: thing we can learn here about why we miss it. And it's with what Simon says here. So verse 17, when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. He says, can I buy that? That seems like a really cool trick. He says, will you sell that to me? But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor a lot in the matter for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. We can miss the mission of God, one, when we think that somehow God's going to be impressed with what we do. He wanted this gift so that he continued to be an important person in the town that he lived. Give this to me. I'll pay for it. And sometimes we can begin to think about the mission of God and being sent out, and I'm going to share my faith so that I can go look at me and look at what I did. And what we do is we make it all about us instead of about the glory of God and what he's done for us in Jesus. And when we operate that way, that is going to fail you. That might work for a little while to get you motivated and out and sharing, but ultimately that's going to collapse in on itself real quickly. I'd say we miss the mission of God when we think we can come into a church and we can be a consumer, and we can come once a week, and maybe even I write a check, and then God will be pleased with me, and I'll see you later. When we think that way, we miss what God is doing. We were never called to be consumers. We were called to be disciples that are being equipped together to go and proclaim the glory of who God is and what He's done. And when we get in these conceptions that we see here, even Simon kind of showing us, We misunderstand the glory of what God's doing. Like we can buy God's grace. It's putting God in this tiny little box. And He's so much greater than that. And when we begin to entertain those thoughts, it destroys the mission that God's calling us to. Peter rebukes Him so forcibly. He says to Him, repent, There's wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Do you see what he's saying? He says, you've totally missed the grace of God thinking you can buy this. This is a strong rebuke for him because he totally misunderstands what it means to come to God. It has to be through what Jesus has done and nothing else. If you think you can buy this, you've totally missed it. And sadly, we think the same way a lot of the time. Do you come here on a Sunday morning because you think now God will be more pleased with me? Or or we pass an offering and you go, oh, I better put money in there because God might be upset with me. It's a misunderstanding of who God is and how we approach Him. We we gather together because the God of the universe is. Has revealed himself to us. And he loves us so much that he came to do what we never could do, that we could have this relationship with him. And so we gather together to praise him because he did that. Not because we're trying to earn something from him. You don't go share your faith because, okay, now God will be pleased with me and I'll get some brownie points. No, that can't be it. It has to be because of what Christ has done. And so when we think about how do we enter into what God's doing, that has to be the first thing. You have to be so enraptured with who God is and what He's done for you. in Jesus, that it is an overflow of the grace of God in your life. It doesn't work any other way. If you go out to share your faith to get brownie points with God, people are going to see right through that not the way it works it has to be what happens as philip comes up and he begins to talk to this ethiopian man and i'll be real brief here but the next thing god does is he takes philip and he goes go talk to that guy literally i don't know if you read that through but he says i want you to start walking to this place and then go out here and you're going to see a guy and go talk to him and he runs up beside a chariot it's almost comical he runs up and he says, what are you reading? The guy's reading. He's reading Isaiah 53. He talks about the suffering servant who took our sin. And he says, who is this talking about? I'm just blown away by God's love for all people. Ethiopian eunuch who makes this great journey to come to Jerusalem because he's seeking most likely he would have left Jerusalem being turned away from the temple because he was a eunuch. He was unclean. He couldn't come in. But yet God loves all people so much. He says, Philip, go talk to that guy. And he runs up alongside and he asks him what it is and he tells them of Jesus. And what he tells him is is what Isaiah 53 says, the suffering servant who bore our sins, who took our iniquity, who did what we can never do for ourselves. And it's only when we see that, our great need for Jesus and what He's done for us and how He meets our deepest needs, that it ever makes sense to go and tell anybody about it. And that's exactly what happens with Philip. That's exactly what happens with Stephen exactly what happens with the apostles. They are so taken with who Christ is and what he's done. They can't stop telling people. Verse four of chapter eight. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word because it was non-negotiable. How can we not tell people this? And so when we talk about how do we recapture that, we have to be taken with who Jesus is and what he's done. It doesn't make sense any other way. He has to be the center and what he's done for us. But then I want to give you a very practical, pragmatic help. I think that's helpful in this text and everything we've seen here. I know many of you know Jesus and you love him. And you are taken with him and you are overwhelmed by his grace regularly. But the idea of sharing your faith scares you to death. I don't know how to do that. What if people laugh at me? What if they think I'm crazy? They think I'm a Bible thumper or whatever. I think that's a really dated term. I don't know. Fanatical, evangelical guy, whatever it would be today. But what you should notice in this passage and everything here, God's doing the work. He's opening the doors. He's calling people. He's showing them. The Ethiopian eunuch is riding along, desperately seeking, asking questions, reading God's word. God is doing the work. He's tilling the ground. He just needs someone to step in. And so he goes, who's this talking about? You go, I know. It's Jesus. God's the one doing the work here. And all these things, he's opening the door. He's making the way that the work is already there. God's inviting us to be part of what He's already doing because He has a great love for all people of all nations and all places. And so that means the people in North Korea or in Iraq or Syria or your next-door neighbor. There are people all around you that desperately long to know the God of the universe, whether they realize it or not. And God is calling us to be part of what he's already doing. And the only way that works is when we know Jesus and what he's done for us, and it becomes so real to us that we can't help but share it with other people. And that's exactly what you see here. And God uses that to push it out into all nations and all places and to cross all these new thresholds. And so we're going to see in the coming weeks he's going to continue to do this. New thresholds and new places and new things because he has this great love for all people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you love us so much that you go to great lengths to show us. At times, because your love is so great for people, you move us outside of our comfort zone into new places. I pray for this body today that you would do that for us that you would begin to show us what that looks like right where you've placed us that you would open doors that you'd begin to push us out into those places and that we would be so enraptured by what you've done for us and your great love for us that we would gladly begin to go and to tell relying on you in all things that you are the sending god that your spirit as it moved It is moving all around us, drawing people to Yourself. And I pray that we would be able to see just a touch of what You're doing. That in our day and in our time and in this place that You've placed us, that we would see many come to faith. We would see many uh, proclaim the name of Jesus. That we would say many repent and be baptized and stand up and proclaim Your name. God, would You please use us in that way. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. to worship now through our time of giving.